Our Father, we give you thanks that it is in the name of your Son that we gather here this morning because of what he did for us, because he arose from the grave and brought eternal life into our lives. We're here to worship you, to study your word, to grow in the ways of the Lord. I ask that your spirit will focus our attention on the truths that will help us to understand better uh, how to walk with you in faith and in ways that will glorify your name and draw others into the faith that we know. Father, I pray your blessing on each one here. And for those that are not with us today because of travel and other matters in their lives, we pray your touch upon their lives too. We pray for the young couple that got married yesterday. Uh, for Vince's uh, granddaughter and her new husband, that you will bless them in this marriage and help them to grow in you and follow your way. Father, I pray that as your word is proclaimed, not only in this class, but in the services of this day and in the other classes of this church, that you will be magnified. In your son's name we pray, amen. If you'll turn to the fourth chapter of the book of Ruth, Beginning at verse 1. Now Boaz went up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the close relative of whom Boaz spoke was passing by. So he said, Turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. And they sat down. Then he said to the closest relative, Naomi, who has come back from the land of Moab, has to sell the piece of land which belonged to our brother Elimelech. So I thought to inform you, saying, Buy it before those who are sitting here and before the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. If not, tell me that I may know. For there is no one but you to redeem it, and after you, and I am after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, On the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you must also acquire Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of the deceased, in order to raise up the name of the deceased on his inheritance. And the closest relative said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I jeopardize my own inheritance. Redeem it for yourself. You may have my right of redemption, for I cannot redeem it. Boaz and Ruth had had the encounter at the threshing floor that night and morning. Actually, it was in the early morning hours. And uh, Ruth has returned to the city. And Boaz, I think just shortly after her, came into the gateway of the city from his threshing floor. He wanted to be there so that when this closer relative that is being referred to and is unnamed in this passage uh, came by, that he could hail him and uh, bring him into this encounter that we read about in this passage. Now, in the ancient Near Eastern world, cities of that time, the gateway to the city was the downtown, the CBD, if you will, the central business district. It wasn't central, obviously. It was at the gateway of the city. But this was the, the heart of the city. This is where everything happened. This is where the action was. They didn't have cities in those days normally, at least in the, in the Israelite or Canaanite world, with a nice plaza in the middle of the city, you know, with the buildings around and statues of heroes and things like you find in the Latin American world. But rather, the uh, cities tended to grow rather haphazardly. The streets were generally not straight. That's why when Paul, remember, after he was knocked off his donkey on the way to Damascus, he was taken into the city, and, and he was taken to the, to the street named Straight. <laughs> well, any street that was straight was called Straight Street, you know, because so few streets were straight. 
<laughs> and if you've ever been to Old City of Jerusalem, you know what it's like. You're wandering her down through all these souks and other things there. But the, the gateway to the city, which is where the people came and, and went, the main gate. Some cities, of course, larger cities, had more than one gate. Smaller cities generally only had a single gateway. Because a gateway was always the weakest point in the city walls. You have the walls around the city, and the gate was always the weakest point because there had to be an opening. Had the wall had to be pierced. And so they had to make an extra heavy uh, fortification there. But nevertheless, it still was the weakest place. So you had as few gates as possible. Uh, if you go to the modern city, well, the old city of Jerusalem, you discover that uh, there are half a dozen gates that or so that penetrate into the city because it's a mile square, you know, so it's a, it's a good size uh, place. But these are small towns that we're talking about here. And it was at the gateway. Now, you come inside the gate, and there's kind of an open area. The buildings were not right up against the gateway. It was open because commerce and vehicles had to travel in and out of the city through this area. And so the people went there for conversation. They went there to observe, to simply watch the uh, people come and the people go. They went there to carry on commerce. This is where most of the business activity of the city occurred, and this is where legal affairs took place. And of course, on any given day, now put yourself back into Bethlehem 3,000 years ago. There was no computer. There was no telephone, no television, no radio, nada. <laughs> so what was there for entertainment? go to the gateway and watch people coming back and forth and talk with your neighbor. Conversation was a much bigger deal in those days than it is in our society. And so the gateway was a place to loiter, if nothing else. The gate and the gateway are mentioned many times in Scripture. In fact, if you have a, a concordance and you look up, you know, complete concordance, you look up, you have columns of gate and gateways uh, to look up. In the story, for, for example, going back to Genesis, in the story of the destruction of Sodom in the 19th chapter of Genesis, you, you discover that the angels come to the gate and Lot is sitting in the gateway. He is sitting in the gateway. So he sees the angels coming and has the conversation uh, with them. Why was Lot sitting in the gateway? Well, Lot being an alien was probably not one of the elders of the city. So he was probably there, maybe because he had nothing else to do at the time, and he was just in conversation, or he wanted to meet somebody, or he had some kind of business there, we don't know, but he was in the gateway of the city. The gateway was a center of commerce, and this is clear in many places. For example, in the passage we have referred to before and will refer to again in the 38th chapter of Genesis, where Judah has refused to marry his youngest son to, his, to the daughter-in-law, Tamar. Tamar, when she decides that she is going to seduce her father-in-law to, to uh, you know, get back at him, I suppose you might say, she sits in the gate of the city and makes herself obviously for sale there in the gate of the city, a place of commerce in that particular sense. But there's a, a much more, that's pretty sad in itself, but there's even a more tragic uh, view of this. If you turn, you don't need to do this, I'll just mention to you, but in the second book of Kings, in the seventh chapter, you have the story where the city of Samaria, which was the capital of the kingdom of Israel, was surrounded by the Aramaeans, or, or the Syrians. Their army had surrounded the city, and the city was being starved. And uh, later on, we discover cannibalism occurs there in the city. But Elisha the prophet was there. And Elisha the prophet, as the situation became worse, made this statement, tomorrow about this time, a measure of fine flour 
will be sold for a shekel and two measures of barley for a shekel in the gate of Samaria. Now in this particular case, of course, the gate was not open. They were under siege. There was an enemy army outside. But nevertheless, the gateway, the open area around the gate was where commerce occurred. You went there to buy food, normally because it was transported in through the gate there. But in this case, that was the place where it was, whatever was left for sale was for sale there. There are numerous passages in Scripture that refer to the gateway as the seat of justice. In the, sec in the 22nd chapter of Deuteronomy, for example, if there is an accusation of infidelity made about a, a woman, a wife, or a husband, they are to bring that accusation to the elders in the gate of the city, it says, and there bring the evidences of, of infidelity, and the elders of the city will make the determination. And if a person is determined to be guilty of adultery, it says they are stoned in the gateway. So it becomes, becomes a place of justice where not only judgment is rendered, but execution could also occur. In Proverbs chapter 22, <clears throat> the Hebrews were warned, do not rob the poor because he is poor or crush the afflicted in the gate. What that means is you don't go there and use the legal uh, aspect of the city to try to harm the poor, the afflicted, and to do injustice to them. The minor prophet Amos states, hate evil, love good, and establish justice in the gate. In other words, in the court, because that's where the court occurred, was in the gateway to the city. Now, as I mentioned last Sunday, there was no national government in Israel at the time of Ruth. Israel was still under the theocracy that was established under Moses and by Joshua in the land. And there was not to be a king in Israel, even though God had in Deuteronomy allowed for a king because he knew one day Israel would clamor for a king. And so he allowed for a king, but he told them that they needed no king but God himself. And they were to be ruled through the, the priestly line and the judges, the Shofatim. And we spent uh, almost a year talking about the book of Judges, the, the story of the Shofatim, the, the, the Shofat that God raised up, the judge. And that was not a judge in the sense that we're talking about here. He was a, more of an executive, although he could also carry out judicial duties. So being that there was no national government, then all legal business occurred on the local level. There was local government. And the local government was not really as official as ours in any sense either. There was no, no elected council. There were simply the elders. And sometimes one of the elders would be viewed as sort of like chairman of the elders, I suppose, roughly mayor of the city. But uh, you, what you have are the local clan or tribal leaders in the city who sit in the gateway to render judgment on all legal matters. It becomes, in other words, the forum. As Rome had a forum, where all the legal matters took place and where politicking occurred. Uh, so this gateway was sort of the forum of the city of Bethlehem and other cities of that time. Thus, it was in the commercial and civic center of the city, which wasn't center, of course, but against the gate, that Boaz went to officially establish between himself and this closer uh, relative who would become Goel, officially enact the position of Goel on behalf of Naomi and Ruth. And also, of course, as noted, and what I think is very interesting from this passage, if you look back at the first verse again, 
according to the author, Boaz said to the closer relative when he came by, he said, turn aside friend. And as I mentioned to you last time, uh, the Hebrew word there is roughly the equivalent of John Doe in, in English. And um, he doesn't name him. Now, I think he named him. He probably said, hey, Ben, come on over here. I, I think he mentioned his name. But the author chose not to name him, I believe, to protect his anonymity. The book of Ruth would be read every year at the Feast of Pentecost by the committed Jews for hundreds of years. And God knew this. And so God inspired the author to leave out, this is my personal belief anyway, the name of this closer relative, to keep him incognito so that his name would not become a bad name in the history of Israel, nor would his family be vilified by the fact that, man, we had this guy way back then, and he wouldn't perform the, the, uh, the uh, position of Goel. Now think about it for a minute. He could have been viewed in the same light that Onan was viewed, who refused to raise up seed to his brother Ur with Tamar. And you remember, I mean, we still have that word used in our language today in a relatively negative way. And therefore, I can understand why the author, I believe, left this man's name out, because he was not willing to perform the leveret marriage duties or function as Goel on behalf of Naomi and Ruth. Now, Boaz was a relative of this man, I think a fairly close relative, next of kin at least to him. And Boaz was a man who was highly respected in, in the city. I think he was actually one of the elders of the city of Bethlehem. Now, he didn't always sit in the gate because he had, he had a job to do, you know. The elders who sat in the gate continuously were sort of those who were on social security, you might say, even though they didn't have social security in those days, but, but those who had the time to sit in the gate. Boaz was still a working man, and so he could only be there from time to time, certain seasons of the year. And so as the, the relative came by, he said to him, please come, come and sit down by me. And he did as Boaz asked him because he respected Boaz, and of course he was curious too. What is it that Boaz is uh, saying to me? And then when the man sat down, Boaz called to ten of the elders. He said, come here, from various places around the, the uh, center there, or the gateway where they were sitting. He said, come around. And they all, I think they all sat in a circle there together, with Boaz and his relative next to him sitting in one side of the circle. The closer Ru 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 Goel knew now that this was something serious because he's gathering ten of the elders. I mean, there's some kind of real business going to happen here. I wonder what this is about. He probably had an idea. Uh, I don't think he was so ignorant to not know that, hey, you know, you're the Goel here and this whole situation has developed. But he probably knew this thing was coming to a head. As they sat in a circle, I believe Boaz had their rapt attention. These guys had probably been just sitting there kibitzing, you know, back and forth. And now, real business is going to occur. The excitement of the day. I think that people who are just passing through or people who are loitering around, just wondering for something to happen, where suddenly their attention was piqued because something really was going to happen. I think it was probably the best, exciting, most exciting thing that happened that whole day. Now, for us today, we'd say, oh, man, what a bore. <laughs> if that's the most exciting thing that happened... But, you know, we live in a society which is so, I mean, we're so information crammed all the time and stuff coming at us all the time, we can't even visualize the idea of spending your whole life mostly in conversation with other people for your entertainment or talking to a sheep or whatever, you know, you happen to be if you were a shepherd. But, you know, they lived a much more laid-back lifestyle than we do. 
they were constantly ramming around. They didn't have pagers and cell phones and email and all the rest of it, you know. In fact, for thousands of years, of course, this will be true not only in those technology things, but if you were to live in the Middle Ages, for example, in Europe, which was, say, 2,500 years closer to the present, the average person never traveled outside of his, the village in which he was born other than into his fields roundabout. And that's why the troubadour was so important. The troubadour or the traveling friar came through and gave a little information about the outside world. The outside world was something was only 10 miles away, you know, in those days. And, and that's the way it has been throughout history. We live in an extremely unusual, uh, to me that's one of the most amazing things about studying history, is that you could have lived in the 19th century and outside of a few little technological things, you wouldn't have felt out of place if you'd have dropped into the 19th century AD from the 19th century BC. You've still seen people riding around in carts and wagons and horses and things that you already knew. A few technological things had occurred by then, like the steam engine and a few things, but, but you drop us in now the end of the 20th, end of the 21st, and most people wouldn't, wouldn't uh, understand at all what had happened. Rip Van Winkle would look like no problem at all compared to what it would be for them. That's why I think that if Scripture talks about heaven having a gate and having walls, you know, the New Jerusalem. Why? You know, walls are for defense. What's there to defend against in, in heaven? Well, it's because for all of history, up until the 20th century, walls were a very common thing. And everybody knew what a wall was and was used to walls. I think in America we may start building walls again pretty soon here, the way things are going, you know, but uh, cities without walls are a relatively modern phenomenon. So they gathered at the uh, gateway here and looked for this excitement to happen. Boaz presented his case now to the, the closer Goel in the presence of the ten witnesses. Now Bethlehem was a small town, and so everybody in the town knew that Naomi had been gone, they knew Naomi had returned, that she had been ten years in Moab. They knew, of course, that she had lost her sons and had lost her husband and that Ruth had come with her. They knew all of this. It was all over town. And they knew that Naomi owned a piece of land or that a piece of land had belonged to Elimelech. They may not have known, however, that it, she was being forced to sell it. She was being forced to sell it because of her impoverished condition. And so it could be that Boaz was the only one up to that time who actually knew this was having to happen and uh, because Ruth informed him. And therefore he is now telling the closer Goel this. That may be why the closer Goel didn't understand that there was a particular issue to be dealt with before that moment. So Boaz put the question to this closer relative. He said, will you carry out the function of Goel and redeem Elimelech's land? Now, Goel, remember, means kinsman redeemer. It was, a, it was a process, a program that God had established through Moses in the law, whereby you would maintain the integrity of, of property within a family, and you would also maintain a family and keep a family from dying out uh, in Israel. And so he asked the man, will you do this? And he says, if you will not, make it plain before all these witnesses so everybody will know you said, no, I cannot do this, or I will do this. I want to know, so I can take care of it if you don't take care of it. And uh, the closer relative immediately said, I will redeem the land. Now, what does that mean? Well, the principle of the redemption of land 
was whereby a near relative will buy the land from a widow in this particular case so that she will have the money that she needs. He then can use the land to grow crops on it and derive income from it. Now, if the woman, or the, let's say he bought the land from an impoverished family, a family had fallen in hard times, they had, they had very little income, they couldn't afford to actually work the land themselves, so they had to sell the land to pay off immediate debt. In that particular case where there was issue, male issue that would inherit the land, at the Jubilee, which came every 50 years, the land was to revert back to the original owner which meant then you prorate the cost of the land. For example, if it's only 20 years until Jubilee, you pay 20 years worth of money to obtain the land and, and reap crops off of it. And otherwise, you, uh, of course, do not absolutely possess the land. Now, in this case, however, Naomi has no, no heritage. She is without issue. Her husband's dead, her sons are dead, there's, there's no one to inherit the land. So in this particular case, if he purchased the land, since he is a family member, it is still staying in the family. So he could, in that case, probably have kept the land. But at that point, Boaz throws in the kicker. If he redeemed the land, he also had to redeem Elimelech's posterity. Not just redeem the property, but you also have to redeem the posterity. He had to agree to leveret marriage to Elimelech's daughter-in-law, Ruth, and to stand in the place of their son, Malan, in raising up a family inheritance. In other words, he had to have a son by Ruth in marriage. Malan was Elimelech's elder son. He had been married to Ruth and had died in Moab. And of course, the property, Elimelech had died first. The, the father, Ruth, Naomi's husband, had died first, so the property went to Malan as the eldest son. He died. Of course, it went to Killian. Killian died. And so the property remained in Naomi's possession, but with the attachment of Ruth. Two widows, in effect, are attached to this piece of property. Since Ruth was Malan's widow, the land could not be sold without the purchaser taking Ruth as his wife. It was a package deal, you might say. Now, as, as you look at the next passage, you discover Boaz doesn't look at it as a package. He thinks of Ruth as a person. But in, in the sense of this, uh, this, this legal proceeding, it's sort of like a package deal. Now, concerning this, the uh, commentator, Charles Pfeiffer, says this, both the alienation of the land and extinction of a family were to prevent, be prevented by the law of the Goel, the kinsman redeemer. The Goel would not come into possession of the land himself, but would hold it in trust for his son by Ruth, who would inherit the name and the patrimony of Malan. So this is the point of it all. The point is not for the Goel to reap anything from this. The point is to preserve posterity and property in this family in Israel. That's the point. So, what at first seemed like a fairly straightforward thing to this man, he said, oh, I, I just need to redeem this property and basically it's mine, hey, no problem, I'll do it. Suddenly it's become very complex. The closer relative quickly and publicly made it very clear that he would not redeem the land. And his explanation was that it would jeopardize his own inheritance for him to exercise his obligation as Goel. I will jeopardize my inheritance if I am forced to marry Ruth and raise up issue with her. 
Now he probably understood that the purchase of the land included somehow probably the, the uh, provision for Naomi, maybe even beyond giving her the money for the land maybe taking her in and maybe even leverage marriage with her, but in a kind of a platonic way because she was an older woman. We don't know what all he thought about that. It isn't explained in, in the scripture. Naomi, of course, was way past childbearing age. But you, Ruth is young. I, I think Ruth was 20-ish. You know, she was a very young woman. And he would be expected to make every single effort possible to raise up a son by Ruth. Now, many commentators and, and students of, of Scripture have given various explanation, explanations as to what the closer relative meant when he said that he was afraid of jeopardizing his own inheritance. Why would this jeopardize his own inheritance? Well, the most obvious explanation would be that in order to acquire the land, he had to take money out of his savings account, his CD or whatever, you know, right? Anyway, he had to take from his resources to purchase this land. So he was transferring from his estate to Naomi money. And, and that money would be lost to his estate because it would be Naomi's. You see, even when, uh, when Naomi, one day, if she lived long enough, if Jubilee was close enough, and if the land were to go back to her, she didn't have to give the money back. And apparently he felt that he would not get enough value in crops off of the land, or maybe he didn't have the ability to really work the land necessary to the extent necessary to generate the money to repay him for what he had to, out, to, to lay out. His son, by his own wife, would inherit, therefore, that much less. We, we have to believe he probably was already married, or widower, we don't know what. Uh, he probably had children or else he wouldn't be talking about jeopardizing his own inheritance. Or he had an intention of being married and raising up a son. We don't know what it exactly meant, but he felt he had an inheritance other than that through Ruth. I don't think he was as wealthy as Boaz. Boaz, we're told, was a wealthy man. Now, we understand that the word wealthy there primarily means a valorous man, but it could and probably also meant that he was a man of, of significant financial resources. And so for Boaz, it was much easier, particularly since Boaz apparently had no other family. I believe Boaz had been married before. He's an older man. But apparently he had at least had either had no children or no surviving children by that marriage, and I don't think he had a wife at the time, even though some Hebrew scholars tried to tell us that, that Boaz was one of the judges who already had 60 wives. I don't believe that in a second. In addition, What's interesting is, this man's sons, if he had other sons or intended to have other sons by, by another wife, regardless of the status of their mothers, all sons of a man had a right to his inheritance, which would mean if he had a son by Ruth, that son actually had a legal claim on his inheritance to divide it with other sons that he might have had. Let me read from the 11th chapter of Judges. You remember this uh, story, Judges 11, verses 1 and 2, story of Jephthah. Now Jephthah the Gileadite was a valiant warrior, but he was the son of a harlot. And Gilead was the father of Jephthah. And Gilead's wife, this is not the harlot, this is his legal wife, bore him sons. And when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, You are not, you shall not have an inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. 
that clearly indicates that although Jephthah was the son of a harlot, he had a claim on Gilead's inheritance. So his stepbrothers, his half-brothers, drove him out so that he would not have any claim on that inheritance. So I believe that this other Goel had a concern that if he raised up a son by Ruth, that son would dilute his inheritance amongst his own sons. Jewish commentaries, which are known as the Midrashim, on this section claim that the closer relative was afraid to marry Ruth for this reason. It wasn't because of money, wasn't because of conflict of, of property, it was because he was superstitious. And he said, Ruth married Malan, and Malan died. Killian married another Moabitess, and he died. They both died young of unexplicable causes. If I marry Ruth, I'll die too. I don't want to die for marrying a Moabitess. If she's, there's a curse on this woman. You know, that's, that's what they think, uh, some think at least. So he didn't want to be signing his own death warrant here by marrying this woman. And you can understand. It's kind of like Henry VIII. If you ever read the story of Henry VIII, you know he had six wives. Well, his sixth wife was already thrice a widow before she married Henry VIII. <laughs> he should have thought of that. <laughs> because she became four times a widow. <laughs> Whatever the case, it was clear that this man was unwilling to perform his duty as Goel. So, he gladly transferred his responsibility to Boaz. Oh, Boaz, I'm so glad you asked. How about you taking over the situation? What is interesting is Boaz was glad. Boaz was happy. Boaz wanted to do it. I, I think that's one of the reasons that he had such an easy time of transferring it to Boaz because Boaz was eager. Yeah, please, I'll take it, you know. If you don't want it, I'll, I'll do it. He was willing to become Goel for Ruth and Naomi. I, to me, in this, I see a wonderful parallel. The law, the Torah, the, the law, is like the closer relative, unable to redeem mankind. But Jesus is like Boaz. Not only is he able, but he is willing to redeem and I didn't just dream this up out of clear blue sky, even though you may think so. Let me read from just a verse. I'll just turn to a verse in the 8th chapter of Romans. Romans 8, 3 reads, For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as a offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. The law could not do the redemption because it was weak, whereas Christ was strong and able to become, as it were, Boaz on behalf of the whole human race, as Boaz was for now, Ruth and Naomi. Well, let's, let's read on the, the last section of, uh, no, next to the last section of uh, Ruth 4, verse beginning at 7. Ruth 4, verse 7. Now, this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning the redemption and exchange of land to confirm any manner, matter. A man removed his sandal and gave it to another, and this was the manner of attestation in Israel. So the closest relative said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, and he removed his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses today that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all, Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilian and Malan. 
Moreover, I have acquired Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of Malan, to be my wife in order to raise up the name of the deceased on his inheritance, so that the name of the deceased may not be cut off from his brothers or from the court of his birthplace. You are witnesses today. And all the people who were in the court and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, both of whom built the house of Israel. May you achieve wealth in Ephrathah and become famous in Bethlehem. Moreover, may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah through the offspring which the Lord shall give you by this woman. Well, it seems rather obvious that uh, many considered this to be a good deal. This was a good match. This was the right thing to do. The wording in verse 7 that we read indicates that by the time of the writing of the book of Ruth, the custom that is described here was no longer practiced. The custom of taking off your sandal and giving it to the guy indicating the actual closure of a property transaction. Now, the book of Ruth was probably written sometime during the United Kingdom of Israel. That is, at, during the time of Saul, David, or Solomon. I think the evidence leans very heavily. If, it, if Samuel was not the actual author, which I think is the best possibility here, that it was somebody who wrote probably during the time of, of David, maybe, maybe Solomon. Uh, by that time, this, this was no longer practiced. National law, you see, was established in Israel by that time. Israel had a king. They now had a central government. They had a ruler. They had a bureaucracy. At least by the time of Solomon, they had a large bureaucracy. They had, of course, a military establishment in Israel that was permanent. And so national law took, took precedence over local custom. And it could be that written deeds were required later on at the time that this book was written rather than simply the passing of the sandal which occurred at this particular time. For example, in the 32nd chapter of Jeremiah, you will read there about a situation in which Jeremiah is asked to redeem a piece of property. And he says, I will redeem it. And the passage tells us that he had to sign and seal a deed, a piece of parchment or a clay tablet. Some, she had to actually sign and seal an official document indicating that the transaction had take place. Now, of course, Jeremiah lives half a millennium later or more than that. So we're talking about hundreds of, of years later and times had changed. Well, what about the meaning of this custom? Well, the commentator Delich, <clears throat> 19th century German commentator, makes this statement. The custom itself arose from the fact that fixed property was taken <clears throat> possession of by treading upon the soil, and hence taking off the shoe and handing it to another was a symbol of the transfer of possession or right of ownership. So by walking on the land, you indicated ownership. Then transferring that shoe means you transferred the land upon which you wrote, walked to someone else. Now we see both specific and generic support for this uh, concept in the law itself. Let me read a couple of passages from uh, Deuteronomy, <clears throat> the first chapter of Deuteronomy, uh, verse 34, we read this. Then the Lord heard the sound of your words, and he was angry and took an oath, saying, 
Not one of these men, this evil generation, shall see the good land which I swore to give to your fathers, except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh. He shall see it, and to him and to his sons I will give the land on which he has set foot, because he followed the Lord fully. And then in the 11th chapter of Deuteronomy at verse 22, For if you are careful to keep all this commandment, which I am commanding you to do it, to love the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways and hold fast to him, then the Lord will drive out all these nations from before you, and you will dispossess possess nations greater and mightier than you. Every place on which the sole of your foot shall tread shall be yours. Your border shall be from the wilderness to Lebanon and from the river, the river Euphrates, as far as the Western Sea. So this is a concept that goes back. Uh, it was known in other societies besides Israelite society. Whether it began in Israelite society through God's ordaining and then spread to others, we do not know. But this was a practice. And so, the other Goel, by taking the sandal off of his foot and giving it to Boaz, that unnamed kinsman legally transferred his right, his responsibility to redeem the land and to perform leveret marriage with Ruth to Boaz. You see, he had prior right because he was closer relative. And so he transferred that legally over to Boaz in front of all these witnesses. So he couldn't say later, oh, by the way, I didn't really do that. Uh, you know, it was he just saying I didn't. No, there are ten witnesses here who saw it, and he could not come back later and, and try to undo it. What is very interesting about this is, as soon as this transaction is over, this man goes right back into the obscurity from which he came. We have no idea what his name was, and we know nothing more about him. We never hear of him again. But what about Boaz? Boaz instantly becomes, for 3,000 years, a synonymous word for gallantry and chivalry. He gives of himself to maintain posterity and to marry this widow and to give hope in this land and raise up issue. I think that's one of the ways in which Boaz is a type of Christ. Self-sacrificing. Now, you know, obviously there was something in it for him. I think he loved Ruth to make sure that his every intention was fully understood and properly witnessed. He proclaimed before these ten elders, boldly and loudly, how he planned to fulfill his responsibility as kinsman redeemer. Even though he hadn't transferred any funds yet, he hadn't done anything yet, he stated that he had bought the land from Naomi. And he recognized the succession by referring to the land as the land of Elimelech, Kilian, and Malan. Furthermore, he announced that he had acquired Ruth as his wife, yet no ceremony had yet transpired. And yet he's dealing with it as if these are already done deals. He made it quite clear that he fully understood the responsibility involved here and that he intended this to be a leveret marriage in which he stated his intention to raise up an inheritance to Elimelech. That was his goal to raise up a son so that the names of Elimelech and Malan would not die out in the posterity of Israel, but that family would continue on down through the history of Israel. And the scripture says that they would not be cut off from the court. The word there in Hebrew is gate of their birthplace. That is Bethlehem. So this is a man who goes into this eyes wide open. 
He understands his responsibility. He's willing to accept it fully, biblically, and justly before the society and before God. And what is interesting to note, though, is when you read at the end of the chapter, it talks about the line of heritage here, and um, you discover that it says to, for example, in verse 21, that to Salmon was born Boaz, to Boaz, Obed, to Obed, Jesse, and to Jesse, David. So he had given of himself, and yet he is the one in the line who is listed, not Elimelech, not Malan even though he was doing this on, on their behalf, so that at least legally in the, in the family of Israel that line continues. But his name is the one listed because he is literally the actual father of Obed. So God requires of Israel that they do these things to effect justice in the land. And one of the points that we'll be making next week is that God is a God of mercy, a God of justice. He wants justice in this world. And he cares for the oppressed in this world. And those who oppress the oppressed, woe be unto them. And yet God at the same time gives credit where credit's due. Obed was fathered by Boaz. And so Boaz is the man whose name appears in the list of Messiah's heritage. Well, next week we'll look at how the elders of the city respond to this whole situation and what they have to say. It's very, very interesting what they have to say in relationship to what has transpired here.